intro. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week, we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel, and I'm very excited to say that I was listening for the first time ever on our friend's recommendation to the completely arbitrary podcast, and one of the hosts was like, yeah, see, because the tundra is a grassland, and the other host was like, wait, no, tundra is tundra, and then the other host was like, no, tundra is a grassland. And I just want to say that this is one of the first times I've encountered somebody, especially a tree person in the wild, who uh, did not partake in grassland erasure and instead was like, no, this ecosystem that you're talking about is a grassland. And that just made me really happy. Aww. Uh, also, today we're talking about the Pleistocene Park, which I am incredibly excited about. Yeah, actually uh, going to tie into a lot of things, including a question that I got from one of our longtime podcast listeners, Brian, who you know. And I don't know, I kind of thought, Nicole, that it might be fun to start off with uh, addressing his question. I answered him but I, I feel like it's a good question for our audience to consider, too. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. So he says, in listening to all the best biome podcasts, I've been wondering what determines which geographic areas will be dominated by grassland versus various types of forest. Lots of episodes have offered some hints or at least touched on what it takes to keep grasslands healthy. But why are the grasslands where they are? Is there a certain mm. recipe of soil type, climate, elevation, etc., that always favors grass over trees or shrubs? Ooh, that's a good question. I know. Do you wanna do you wanna take a bit of a guess? Because I already like answered him, so I have an idea in my head of what I would say, obviously. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, they're gonna be a transition area a lot of times between really, really dry biomes for, like a desert to a really, really wet biome, which is going to usually be forest. So there's the, you know, precipitation transition gradient there. Um, a lot of times they tend to be in rain shadows of mountain ranges, kind of like the Madagascar ones where the mountain is stopping the precipitation and then there's very little precipitation. And so grasses take over. Um, but yeah, and then obviously we need those, those grazers there and we need, um, some of those other things going on, but yeah, how would you answer it? Yeah. You know, I, I said that in my opinion, precipitation was probably the biggest climactic factor. Cause I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen grasslands occur at all sorts of elevations. There are literally alpine grasslands and meadows yeah. and stuff, which will come up in today's episode. Um, but also, you know, the habitat type we're going to be talking about today or the ecosystem type. Uh, that we're talking about today actually occurs across a, a huge gradient of, of climactic conditions, including wet and dry. And so, you know, um, it seems to me that the disturbance is the biggest, like, secondary condition. And whatever the disturbance is, you know, it's something that, whether it's flooding or uh, fires or mm -hmm. grazing herbivores, uh, there's something there that is under certain climactic conditions that would maybe favor trees or shrubs. It's it's forcing them back so that the grasses are able to to take over. And so it's it's somewhere in a precipitation range of not a desert and not a super wet forest. <laughs> yeah. 
but but it has to have that disturbance. And I actually don't know anything about soil types and how soil has to do with creating the right formula for a grassland. Um, but we know that where grasslands exist, there are certain characteristics of soil typically, like it's going to be really productive. And so I think that's why so many other uh, ecosystem types, if there's enough water, really try to move into those areas. And that's why the disturbance has to keep pushing them back because grasslands create really, really productive, organic, rich soil. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, f- it feels like almost kind of a catch-22 because, like, the grazers and the disturbances make the grasslands, but it's like, it, but where did the grasslands come from? <laughs> <laughs> because it had to be there before the grazers could come and then continue it being there. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, once those those things reach like a sort of symbiosis with, with each mm-hmm. other, um, those plants and other things that like persist in those ecosystems really start to adapt to those disturbance conditions that are allowing it to exist in the first place. And so it's like, I don't want to give anybody the impression that grasslands are a necessarily transitional sort of ecosystem mm-hmm. where you know if nature took its course it would turn into something else because you know that's a very like man-made management sort of viewpoint and really nature taking its course often leads to this symbiotic place where all of these animals and plants thrive in the disturbance that that allows grass to thrive yeah for sure so, yeah i don't know okay cool well um We'll continue teasing out (laughs) that definition as we continue talking about more grasslands. Um, Did we have any other news or anything, Nicole? I don't believe so. Cool. So let's jump into Pleistocene Park, which uh, I selfishly wanted to talk about what makes a grassland in the beginning. I thought (laughs) like, oh, maybe we should do it at the very end or something. But I think a lot of those things we talked about are going to be super relevant for this like uh Pleistocene Park project that's been teased. So yeah, diving right in. Uh Nicole, um could you give us like your most basic uh understanding of what the heck Pleistocene Park is? It's a park where surely there are mammoths. Um <laughs> Because we, we, this is like a tease from like a much earlier episode. I've almost forgotten, or I, I have literally forgotten which one uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it was in. But yeah. I'm, I'm assuming they're trying to kind of restore the area to be like it was in the Pleistocene. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's literally which is it. When mammoths were around, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, it's a project in Russia. Um, and their primary goal, well, they, they have several research goals and stuff, which I'll, I'll certainly get into, but um, their, their primary goal is to recreate uh, an ecosystem that was very dominant during the Pleistocene. Like we're talking pretty much the entire Pleistocene, like millions of years, this ecosystem persisted through many glacial periods and interglacial periods until finally... You know, we're in uh, the most recent interglacial period right now. So after the last uh, ice age and and glacial period, um, there was a huge drop off and that ecosystem almost disappeared from the earth. And just like Nicole mentioned, this ecosystem 
was one that was dominated by mammoths. And I'll, I'll kind of describe what this ecosystem was like in the Pleistocene and just how dominant it was. So it covered 15 million square kilometers at its peak. Ooh. And the folks um, in this Pleistocene Park project uh, refer to this ecosystem as the mammoth steppe, which is pretty yes. analogous to something that we would call the steppe tundra today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mentioned the mammoth steppe in uh, the Saiga episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, at this peak, when it covered this huge uh, mass, as you can imagine, with relation to all these <laughs> uh, Eurasian steppe animals we've talked about, it, it did yeah. cover a similar area. So um, across Europe and Asia, like it was in Spain, it was in Mongolia, it was in Russia. Um, it also extended across the Bering Land Bridge and into North America, so Canada and the United States. So this was a huge ecosystem type that was really dominated by mega herbivores. That is the thing you picture when you picture Pleistocene grasslands or the Pleistocene in general, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this this period of Earth's history was so similar to modern day uh, in a lot of different senses. For example, we had people toward the end of the Pleistocene beginning to emerge. We had um, (laughs) cowbirds, possibly even brown-headed cowbirds specifically, uh, already during the Pleistocene. A lot of very, very recognizable groups of animals. Horses, Mm -hmm. camels... Uh, elephants, saiga. lions, saiga, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and this huge grassland habitat type is where they they all thrived. So um, at the end of the Quaternary period, there is what we call the Quaternary extinction. This was the end of the Pleistocene epoch, and. After this extinction event, when we lost so many of those mega herbivores across the world, even um, this dominant mammoth steppe began to be slowly replaced by less productive tundra that has a lot more like mosses and lichens than grasses and uh, boreal forests, which are usually pretty like low productive, like uh, pretty monotypic conifer forests basically and and they all moved in and replaced much of the mammoth steppe so i have i have two questions here for you nicole oh gosh okay okay first one do we have any mammoth steppe left on the planet Um, this feels like a trick question (laughs) (laughs) yeah i felt like it was a trick (laughs) question when it was brought up in uh something that i saw but yeah (laughs) I mean, I guess, I mean, the Eurasian step is maybe could be possibly said to be part of the mammoth step, but like, I'm sure it's much different than what the mammoth step once was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> and that is actually not considered a remnant. So although okay. it does occupy some of the same locations, uh, it's, it's really not the same type of habitat. It's, it's yeah. fairly different. And uh, yeah. 
So there, there is a place where it's said <laughs> that this is uh, actually fairly close to being a perfectly preserved remnant of <laughs> this habitat. Um, but it's because of mountains that actually kind of shielded it from a lot of changes. I'm trying to figure out what this place like specifically is called, like how you would na navigate like where it is on the planet. So, so basically like in central Eurasia, there are some mountains, they're called uh, Altai Sion mountains. And this is like a region, okay. I'm trying to figure out how to describe where it is. Um, it's fairly alpine, which is probably why it, it survived and has a lot of similarities to the, the historic mammoth set step. Um, but yeah, bas basically in the middle of, uh, the Eurasian continent in those mountains, there's a sort of a sheltered area where at the foothills of those mountains, um, in between the, the boreal forests there, um, we have these remnants of the mammoth steppe that still support some mega herbivores today. Some of the ones that survived the extinction event and adapted into more forested regions, things like reindeer and stuff like that. So there is a, a very small fragment left, but honestly, I was surprised at how small that fragment was because I was kind of picturing a much broader region of the Eurasian steppe being considered part of it. But no, it's, sure. it's certainly located like within you know, what we would consider the Eurasian steppe, but it's not anything like the range I was expecting. Yeah. Um, is that piece of historic prairie, I guess? Is it, or not prairie? <laughs> is that piece of historic grassland protected in any way? Um, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I, I see that there is a biosphere reserve located on the border of Mongolia and the Republic of Tuva that has some of this remaining steppe preserved. Um, I think as far as like the Altai and Sion mountain ranges, mm -hmm. it's, and, and okay, so this is kind of where uh, Kazakhstan, China, Mongolia, and Russia come together. So that's like around the area we're talking about. So very familiar to our last like couple of episodes we did before the <laughs> Madagascar one. Um, okay. Yeah, no, no, but that gives us a good point of reference. Yeah. Right. And so there is some protected area there, but I think mostly the, the protection is just in its location being so tucked into these mountains that make it not great for development and stuff like that. Um, so it's pretty remote. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, so that that is where we have those last fragments. Now, my second question for you, Nicole, is what happened during the quaternary extinction <laughs> that actually killed off all of this megafauna like what happened and uh -huh. why did that happen i was i happen? was i was actually gonna ask you <laughs> <laughs> i was like that sounds like a hard question i'll be nice and not ask because i don't want to take <laughs> no, up no, too no. much time no this was actually because it was like such a big question i was especially interested in it and um you know, maybe I should give a little bit more background on the people who are doing Pleistocene Park because they actually have a lot of research on this. Um, let me uh, find their... Yes, so Sergei uh, Zimov, who is a scientist who works in... Gosh, where did I write the name of his 
<laughs> science station. Oh, uh, the Northeast Scientific Station in Tursky, Russia, which is very, very remote up in Siberia. Um, so he runs that science scientific station. He is a scientist and he has a lot of public uh, publications on these questions about the Pleistocene um, that they've done the research on at their science station and within this region where the Pleistocene Park is located. And his son, Nikita Zimov, um, has kind of picked up that mantle and is not only working alongside him on these projects, but is himself a scientist and has a lot of publications on this topic as well. And I actually got to watch like an hour and a half long uh, guest lecture by Nikita. Oh. <laughs> I know, it was so cool. I was like, I saw an interview with uh, one of those science uh, magazine sort of projects where they interviewed Nikita and uh, Sergi. And it was so cool because like Nikita's like taking a bunch of students from the area underground into permafrost caves and like doing like the kind of education work that re we really enjoy but yeah, like with yeah. the permafrost and this like pleistocene environment it's so cool um and i thought it was just so incredible to actually get like quotes of them talking and then to sit down and watch nikita do an entire lecture on his work and like the research that he's done oh it's so so cool nicole i can't oh. tell you how much i geeked out um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they make a point uh, to point out that there are a couple of hypotheses for the quaternary extinction. And the one that has historically been pointed at a lot, but which has pretty much lost ground to the point of basically, in my opinion, being almost a, an obsolete point and is maybe more tied into <laughs> the second hypothesis is just climate change, which fascinates me because Nicole, how many of these Pleistocene era animals have we covered like the Bactrian camels and stuff like that, mm -hmm. where we did point to climate change as the primary way for how they went extinct. Yeah, for sure. Because that is kind of, I think what has historically been pointed to as, as the effort, but here's why, one of the reasons why this really doesn't hold any water, um, because, for example, on the Mammoth Steppe, which is, you know, the um, Zimov's specialty, of course, and that's where they live and where they do their work, um, they, that entire ecosystem survived millions of years of this exact same climate change situation and persisted just fine. So they went through tons of glacial and interglacial periods yeah. without experiencing drastic habitat change or climate change uh, or sorry, uh, ecosystem change. You know what I mean? I think, <laughs> you know, like the, it didn't kill off all the megafauna because of the different climactic changes. In fact, you know, it seems like during the interglacial periods when it was warmer, the uh, increased access to water in the warmer weather uh, actually made the grass productivity go up, which made the megafauna increase in their abundance during those periods. Okay, okay. And diversify. So it seems very unlikely that climate change alone, although we do see the climate or the, the habitats changing during this extinction event, uh, I it seems much more likely now that maybe the habitats and the ecosystems were shifting because of the extinction of herbivores and not that the herbivores were going extinct as a result of the changing habitats. 
and I'll explain why. So <laughs> during <laughs> this last interglacial period, we began to see, we, we track the bones in permafrost. We know the abundances of these animals, right? So we have this data pretty explicitly, whether it's in fossils that are preserved in the ground or in permafrost. We, we have this data, right? So megafauna in this region actually increased when the interglacial period began and then immediately crashed following the arrival of humans. So humans, it turns out, are probably the key to a global extinction event of megafauna <laughs> on our planet. I mean, are we really surprised? <laughs> and like, we kind of already knew that, but I guess not to this scale. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Dang. like, not surprising, but my God, is it eye-opening to think that like our history of just hunting animals to extinction is a long <laughs> tradition of our species. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it also makes this idea of the Pleistocene uh, rewilding projects much more like ethically interesting in my opinion, but we'll, we'll talk about that stuff later. For now, let's talk about why we think that it's freaking humans. So remember when we had conversations, maybe even multiple times on this podcast, about how the megafauna in Africa um, were able to evolve alongside humans and therefore were pretty resilient to becoming extincted by humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that that is absolutely the case here. And this is where, you know, the migration of humans comes in and the lack of that sort of ancestral instinctive relationship to humans that other animals have. There was one um, project, it may have been actually that documentary that you sent me. You know the algorithm has gotten out of control when YouTube <laughs> sends my co-host video recommendations for the Pleistocene Park. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, they use this term called ecological naivety. Oh. Which really well describes what other mega herbivores would have experienced with the arrival of humans. Like they just did not have the instinctive uh, needed like fear of humans to escape them. And it's also sure. good to point out that, you know, as humans evolved in Africa and these mega herbivores evolved alongside of them to have, to be able to like combat our hunting strategies, humans were developing kind of intense hunting strategies to be able to take down these wary animals. So uh -huh. it isn't just like, oh, they weren't afraid of humans. It was like, no, literally they've evolved alongside of each other to the point where like humans are having to develop really creative hunting strategies that put them leagues beyond these ecologically naive herbivores in other continents. Yeah, evolutionary arms race, but <laughs> yeah. with us. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so, so here's where it gets kind of interesting, in my opinion. So um, we we can track the crash of megafauna from uh, the mammoth steppe directly to the arrival of humans, right? Mm -hmm. We see during that first until in, mm, 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 we see at the beginning of that interglacial period, the one that we're in still today, that they began to rise. 
then humans showed up and they crashed. They just plummeted. So we actually see this same trend in other continents that corresponds to when humans arrived. So uh, we're talking even places like Australia. Yeah. They experienced a huge megafaunal crash when humans arrived. Um, and Madagascar was brought up specifically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've definitely so, heard that with Madagascar. Mm-hmm. Um, and also North America. Um, so, you know, the second the first humans arrived in North America, those naive megafauna that were there were hunted to an incredible extent. And uh, it's, it's also true that in Africa there was a noticeable dip when humans expanded, but it was much, much more slight compared to every other continent because of the, you know, benefits they had of, you know, understanding a little bit more about what the hell they were dealing with. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, humans have been overhunting since we existed, which is just <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> and not at all surprising. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, Nikita also pointed out that the effect here of like humans triggering those global population crashes was even greater in North and South America than it was in Siberia too. Uh-huh. So uh, he also pointed out that humans probably didn't kill, you know, every single one. It's not like they literally hunted them to the very last animal. But once you drop the population below a certain threshold, it's so hard to recover. And by that point, the ecology of the landscape itself has begun to shift. Yeah. Um, and that's going to play a huge role in how and why we are, in this instance at least, exploring the benefits of recreating these Pleistocene ecosystems. Because it turns out that these large herbivores had a huge, huge impact in maintaining this ecosystem and making it the incredible productive uh, carbon sink that it is. And without those animals maintaining the landscape, it was so easy for forests to come in and replace those vanishing grasslands, which makes it even more likely that it's going to be a struggle for the remaining animals to survive. Um, he, he specifically mentioned in Europe, so following the extinction of Pleistocene grazing herbivores in Europe, because remember, like, this mammoth steppe extended into, like, Spain, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it, it went across Europe. So... Um, Following the extinction of Pleistocene grazing herbivores, forests replaced those vanishing grasslands, which I actually did not know about. And I've always heard of current modern European grasslands as being sort of a derived human-created thing. But but it's also weird because apparently the forests that existed before that was also a sort of human-created thing because we killed off all the grazing herbivores that maintained the original grassland and then it was replaced by forests and then we cut down the forest and created grasslands and it's like <laughs> what is what is happening and how is so much of the ecology of our planet actually based upon human experience and intervention yeah okay. like that's fascinating um and yeah, so in those cases, cases starvation likely killed the remaining herds that just were not able to adapt to the changing ecosystems where they were less dominant. Man, and you know what makes this like really exciting? Like I've I've been on um, a little bit of a slight tangent, as you probably know, um, 
with indigenous science, mm-hmm. um, specifically American indigenous science, but uh, there's obviously indigenous science practices from across the globe. But, you know, I think it's interesting to point out that the uh, people, the the humans that originally came to North America and were a part of this mass extinction event are the people, the humans that, you know, in in some ways and in, in at least some amounts are literally still alive today. Like we know the, the names of these people, like they are literal humans on the planet today mm-hmm. who have a tradition that allowed them through their, you know, historic traditions and, and their experience on this uh, continent and through the traditions that have been passed down, which is what, you know, they call indigenous sciences. Um, they were able to like create a thriving ecosystem that replaced, you know, the, the widespread ecosystem that was here. You know what I mean? Like we Mm -hmm. here in America, we tend to view the arrival of colonists as like the arrival of humans to this pristine landscape, but the arrival of humans occurred at the end of the Pleistocene, you know, like the humans have been here this entire time and humans were the ones who were able to create and maintain the grasslands with those herds of megafauna that went completely extinct in other places, you yeah. know? So the humans that um, still have sciences and traditions and understandings of the landscape today were the ones that developed the wildlife management systems that allowed prairies to survive on the continent. And I think that that cannot be overlooked in this, you know, conversation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Isn't that insane to think about, though? Yeah. Just it how... Really... Yeah. No, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, like, it really, really is. And, like, <laughs> megafauna never stood a chance. Like, <laughs> the the climate was changing. They're like, it's okay. We got this. We've done it before. And then humans were like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, nice, uh, nice meat you got there. Would sure be a shame if I uh, hunted you down with my superior hunting tactics. Yeah, yes. no, <laughs> absolutely insane. Yeah, so so the quaternary extinction was man-made. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is fascinating. Okay, so do you like how we spent like this entire uh, like first thirty minutes or whatever of this episode? Not even talking about the park. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, wouldn't you like to talk more about the park now that we yeah. have this base knowledge down? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so so as Nikita himself points out, uh, you know, in order to determine whether this ecosystem can be uh, revived or should be revived, you really need to understand all of that stuff about, like, you know, reconstructing that historic ecosystem to justify how you would even build the park in the first place. And um, in the case of Pleistocene Park, there are two main goals, which maybe I should have mentioned in the beginning because this is freaking incredible and I love it so much <laughs> and it should be a good plug. Uh, yeah, so here, here is their two goals. The first actually has to do with climate change. Uh, in, well, actually both of them have to do with climate change. So back up. The first one has to do with permafrost. And the second has to do with sequestering carbon into those grasslands. And dude, you know, I praised the 
fellas over at Completely Arbitrary in the beginning. <sighs> that documentary you sent me, because the algorithm knows you and I way too well, <laughs> uh-huh. um, kind of made me mad a little bit because, like, they actually covered this portion, too, because it's something that Pleistocene Park really values as, like, the main reason for their existence, right? And so at a certain point, uh, this this guy who's narrating it goes, I know what you're thinking. How could destroying forests help climate change? <laughs> and it made me mad because you know why. But, you know, again, it's this like just absolutely permeating feeling that we have for some reason as society, uh, as a global society even, <laughs> that you need to have trees to have like the best type of wild habitat possible yeah yeah so (laughs) and i didn't even actually like the way that he talked about this entire thing i have a lot of problems with it which i might bring up um but possibly um one of the most interesting aspects of like this justification for pleistocene park even existing was the permafrost issue um and i should mention that of course with any kind of rewilding uh experiment or suggestion that involves like resurrecting this like prehistoric sort of thing a lot of people out there are like oh i don't know that sounds kind of like a pandora's box what are you gonna do release mongooses onto hawaii sounds pretty dangerous (laughs) uh (laughs) i literally watched a uh professor's like lecture on this subject and like he spent the last half of the presentation just giving examples about why it's super, super dangerous to release animals into ecosystems. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, the Burmese pythons sure do kill a lot of stuff in the Everglades. Well, mongooses sure do kill a lot of birds in the Hawaiian Islands. Mm -hmm. So I'm just posing a philosophical philosophical question to you, class. is this worth it? And it seems like a lot of weird fear-mongering when we're really talking about, like, something that has some concrete benefits and isn't necessarily the same as, like, I don't know, putting mink on the island of Iceland and letting them wreak havoc on nesting seabirds. <laughs> you know, it, we're, we're talking about something completely different. But those are still really good points to bring up. Yeah. And that's why I think these justifications are incredibly important. And, and some people... Um, have talked about this as if it's, you know, possibly one of the most important things that we're learning about saving the Arctic during this moment in climate change. Mm. So, yeah. So, like, I mean, all the people that released mongooses or whatever, uh, I mean, they thought they were doing the right thing, so... (laughs) Uh, It's hard. I mean, yeah, you have a good point. Mm Mm-hmm. But I would also say that the people releasing the mongooses were like, yes, this diurnal predator will definitely encounter and eat a lot of nocturnal prey items. <laughs> and if they had just like thought a little bit ecologically about what they were doing first, maybe they ha- would have realized how nonsensical mm-hmm. that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think in terms of what the Z-Mobs are doing... Um, they do put a lot of thought into which animals are going to provide similar ecological functions that we're looking at, because that's, you know, primarily what we're talking about, especially when it comes to, wow, a lot of animals that are definitely extinct. Like, we're not going to be able to release woolly rhinoceroses in Siberia. That Darn. I mean, that it cannot happen. I know. <laughs> Could regular rhinoceroses be released? 
TBD. Okay. Uh um, <laughs> but it is also a fenced in area and we're talking about megafauna, which I was just about to say, hey, those are a lot easier to, to contain but actually, all of their wapiti jumped the fence and escaped, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. But, uh, you know, it is, I don't know, they're, it's a good conversation to have. But I'm not going to have any more of it because I want to talk about <laughs> ecologically what they're doing. Okay. 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 So, um, we want to talk about the permafrost first. So this is actually a really simple issue that has some pretty amazing results. Um, as you're aware, I'm sure, Nicole, but maybe our audience needs to be reminded or caught up to speed, permafrost thawing is a huge issue in terms of climate change. Do you, do you recall off the top of your head why? The polar bears. And no! Who needs polar bears? It's fine. No, 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 no. The real, the real <laughs> issue, then that's like sea ice, Nicole. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, no, the real issue with permafrost melting is uh, the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Which uh, the Zimoffs in interviews have uh, said is basically the equivalent of, you know, introducing an entire second United States into the planet. Mm-hmm. In terms of greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> and we all know how bad the U.S. is at those things, so... Sure is just literally the worst. Um, so, yeah, pretty bad. And what's maybe... The, the problem here is that as long as the, the permafrost is able to have, like, a really deep freeze during the winters and get down to, to very deep temperatures, the permafrost can grow and... It's a little bit more able to resist or uh, uh, at least prolong the effects of climate change that thawed out during the summertime. Mm -hmm. Now, here, what's really interesting is that in places like Siberia, which is, you know, where permafrost is, these deep layers of snow are really, really good insulators. And so while it might be minus 40 degrees Celsius air temperatures in the winter, the ground temperatures may only be minus five. So that's making it really difficult for the permafrost to kind of grow back during the winter and refreeze in that deep way it needs to resist climate change. And, you know, as uh, the Zimovs have said in interviews, because uh -huh, I am so thrilled still that I got to see them actually speak on this, um, you could bulldoze the entire Arctic or you could release animals and let them do the same thing anyway. So in Pleistocene Park, where megafauna compact and move the snow, um, according to Nikita, even like four or five times per winter, they will move the snow around in different parts of the park in the same <laughs> <What>? area. <laughs> yeah. Like um, like they, they might compact and move the snow around in one area like four or five different times in the winter. Um, the ground temperatures will reach up to minus 30 or down to minus 30. So, so we're talking like a significant increase in that deep freeze that the permafrost really needs in order to recover and grow. Wow. Yeah. So again, without herbivores with a giant blanket of snow insulating it, the ground gets to minus five. With megafauna, minus 30. Yeah. 
absolutely insane. And, you know, they have permafrost caves up there. And so when uh, the school kids get to go down and experience this, they really get to see what that permafrost looks like and feel the difference in, you know, where the megafauna are and preserving that deep freeze. It's so cool. And so that's such like a simple and easy thing, but it makes so much sense and has a really huge implication for healing the permafrost. Okay, so that's a pretty easy thing. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty I... easy thing. <laughs> so confidently. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, it's a simple concept to explain. Now okay. I have to go explain something much more complicated, <laughs> is what oh, I, I was meaning. <laughs> yeah. So, so the other implication here has to do more broadly with the benefits of restoring grasslands with regards to climate change. So here's where a lot of their actual work with the permafrost comes into play, because, of course, permafrost is really preserving to an insane degree, just perfectly, a lot of these literal soils that are literally Pleistocene soils that we can just look at, um, <laughs> especially around uh, riverbanks where they're just being eroded and exposed. And it's like, yep, that sure is Pleistocene soil just sitting there in the open. Amazing. Um, so looking at this soil, uh, there's something visual that you just cannot not notice, that you absolutely have to notice. And that is the, just the prevalence of all of these fine roots and organic matter deep into the soil. Pretty typical grassland stuff. So here I get to explain to you just how, at least in these environments and, and in even temperate grassland environments, uh, grasslands are an enormous carbon sink. Um, I, I heard someone, ex uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Someone compare this to uh, forests where, you know, most of the carbon that trees are putting into their bodies is just going into their above ground systems. Tree falls over, roots and all, and immediately the carbon goes back into the environment, into the air, because it just decomposes right there in the surface. Sure, yeah. Whereas with grasses, um, really, really grasses are building rich soil. And this particular Pleistocene age permafrost is called Yodoma, and uh, it has a lot of ice in it in addition to all of this organic matter. But it's it's an incredibly organic rich, like we're talking 2% carbon by mass, which I think means a lot, but I don't really know the context for that. But that's a number <laughs> I can throw out there for anybody who does know what Is, that means. Do you have a comparison to like a forest? Uh, nope. Okay. Sure don't. But I mean, <laughs> we, we know... Um, from our many discussions on grasslands, that this is one of the reasons why grasslands get plowed down so much because yeah. their soils are just incredibly rich. Um, you can see visually many fine roots and stems in the soil, and they've estimated that these remnants of the Pleistocene Age permafrost contain around 500 billion, with a B, tons of organic carbon, which is actually more than all of the world's above ground vegetation. Ooh. Which means that just this Pleistocene Age permafrost is likely one of the biggest carbon reserves on the planet. Absolutely what? insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, think think that think about that again. 
what if we restore the tundra and we start, you know, sinking all this carbon again back into the permafrost, yada, 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 everything's great, but then we can't slow down global warming and it just gets hot and then later it all melts and then all of the extra stuff that we've managed to sink into the permafrost then gets released. Hey, Nicole, guess what? What? Restoring the grasslands mitigates those effects. Yeah. Yeah, let me explain. Um, so basically, um, the, the tundra that exists on the Siberian peninsula right now, uh, peninsula, is it a peninsula? Is that the right word? I don't know. The, the, permit, <laughs> the tundra that exists there is a lot of like lichens and very, very different, um, plant communities than a steppe grassland would be. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, so an important note here is that by restoring not not a necessarily a specific type of tundra, but more of like a steppe grassland, which, you know, mm-hmm. as I pointed out in the beginning, tundras are and can be grasslands. Um, but really, we're talking about shifting the vegetative community away from mosses and other very like um, other non non grass things back to more of like a grass and forb community. By by doing this, the way that the carbon is actually stored is is stored in the soil in all of that organic matter, in those fine roots, in the underground stems, which don't break down as easily. And when they do actually build soil uh, and go into the soil rather than going into the air as carbon dioxide. So it is a really effective carbon sink. And the other piece of this has to do with their ability to uptake moisture. So um, grasses are going to be much more effective at taking up moisture. And because the permafrost in this in this Arctic region has so much water content, that's one of the reasons why, as it melts, so much methane in particular is being released. Um, they have just literal lakes and ponds forming of this like meltwater and there will be methane bubbles like bubbling up through this and the reason why is that as all of these microbes are awakening in the permafrost which is how they described it but that sounds honestly way more terrifying to me (laughs) than like the nonchalant like yes the microbes are awakening um (laughs) but but as they awaken um all of this moisture in the ground that is not being taken up by these tundra plants is is just creating completely anaerobic conditions which leads to that like super production of methane which is pumping so much greenhouse gas into the environment Mm -hmm. Which is a huge problem. Yeah, so so with with all of these grasses, um, water in the Pleistocene was sort of a limiting factor to the production of these ecosystems. Um, but as grasses become the more dominant form, they're able to take up a lot of that water and that actually reduces the the impact that creates these anaerobic conditions that leads to so much methane gas being produced. And it's continuing to lock more carbon underground compared to just a tundra ecosystem, which is really unproductive. So really the issue here is that the grasslands are just super, super productive. 
and um, a lot of the carbon resources that get produced in this grassland that has that symbiotic relationship with the mega grazing herbivores that in turn fertilize it and stuff. It's just creating really carbon rich soil instead of just releasing a lot of microbe burps into the atmosphere from the tundra. <laughs> okay. So even as the permafrost continues to melt, which, you know, at this point, I think none of the scientists involved have any, I don't know, um, blinders on to the fact that it's it's going to melt and we're not going to be able to reverse any of this. Um, but this is a really good way to maybe if not offset some of the predictive changes to prolong it um, while we try to get our shit together as humanity. Um, But yeah, that's an important function of these grasslands. And as we talked about with this whole ecosystem, in order for this step in this world's largest ecosystem um, to really function, it needs those herbivores and it's kind of impossible to really express just how important this ecosystem is even to like, I don't know. He said that um, it shapes or shaped historically the glacial ecosystem. Like we're talking about things like, you know, uh, shrubs and forest are much darker than grasslands. So more heat is reflected back to space when there is grasslands. Um, yeah. And that effect is much more pronounced in spring, where the dark forest is already heating by the sun, but the pastures are still covered with snow. And, you know, the animals trampling down the snow, exposing the permafrost to that deep restorative freeze that it needs. That's incredible. Um, the soil carbon accumulating through the root growth and litter transfer, like, that's freaking insane. And... Um, you know, this is maybe a topic for a different time, but um, in some of the graphs they, that they show in their research, uh, temperate grassland ecosystems are even more productive than Arc- Arctic ecosystems in terms of uh, the, the way that they're sinking carbon. So it is pretty in- insane, this work that they're doing, especially because, you know, maybe to put this into perspective, before they began this work really examining this permafrost, it was considered to be sort of a, a carbon or organic desert. Like people didn't think that it had any organic matter. But you know, in in places where the permafrost has been dug up for gold mines and it's kind of thawed as it's been exposed to the surface, like if you go look at those places today, they're just overtaken by fields of forbs because they're just thriving in that organic rich soil. It's mm. it's incredible, um, and. This has so many implications, especially obviously for the Arctic in recovering from this climate change and trying to mitigate it. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. Just, why don't people care about grasslands more? <laughs> I don't know, but I think we have some allies in the tree people for some reason. Hey. So let's get a hold of them. Hey! <laughs> and our Madagascar research friends. You know, yes. grasslands are having a moment and they we are. are here to facilitate that growth. Someday soon, <laughs> everybody will love grasslands. Oh. Um, so, okay, before we knock this off, let me end with some fun stuff. So I want to talk about, like, how they built Pleistocene Park just for a second. Um, 
Yeah, and what even is, like, is Pleistocene Park? You haven't even said, like, <laughs> where it is, how big I it is, did. what they're doing. You oh said they're God. moving snow around. That's literally all no, you said. No, I didn't. Okay, so here's the uh-huh. thing. Pleistocene Park is up in, in Siberia. It's, I'm is that a question or a frantically. I'm scrolling frantically <laughs> to find the name of the city that it's closest to. Every time I scroll past, how could destroying forests help? I die inside. Yeah, so so like I said, the Zimovs work in Northeast Science Station in Chersky, Russia, or near Chersky, Russia. It's really freaking remote. It's super, super, super freaking remote. It's way up in Siberia. And they have about 40 acres of the land that they do their research on. That has been fenced off and designated the Pleistocene Park, where they are restoring theoretically, um, or trying to, um, the Pleistocene mammoth steppe. And this is a process called rewilding. Uh, the goal of rewilding always is just letting nature take care of itself, enabling natural processes to shape land and sea, to repair damaged ecosystems, blah, 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 all that stuff. And <laughs> uh, so in the case of, of Pleistocene, they are trying to create this uh, ecological system or recreate this ecological system that was lost at the end of the Pleistocene, which is incredibly driven by mega herbivores. So they are basically just putting mega herbivores out onto the property um, and seeing what ecological changes occur as a result of that. That's it. Okay. 40 acres, hectares, sorry, 40 hectares of fenced area where they are releasing mega herbivores to see what happens and how the ecological systems just develop from that introduction. Okay, so when they began, it was the father, Sergi, and the first, or Sergi? Um, the first animal that they released out there was actually horses because horses were one of the dominant animals. In fact, during one of their uh, papers where they were analyzing the bones they found up in this area, um, they had a pretty uh, like specific breakdown. Um, they calculated <laughs> that the number of primary herbivores on each square kilometer of North Siberian lowland pastures in this era was one mammoth, five bison, eight horses, and 15 reindeer. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that was, in 2012, great job. Um, yeah, and Nikita said, you know, climbing to the top of a hill in this same region, if you looked out in the Pleistocene, at the end of the Pleistocene, you would see like two to 3,000 mega herbivores. And of course he points out that today, climbing on top of that same hill, you see none of them. There are none, there aren't yeah. any. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised, because like even in recent history, I mean, there was millions and millions of Mongolian gazelle just running around in numbers to rival African herds of gazelle. And now there's like hardly any, so. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people talk about rewilding in the context of the American prairie sometimes. Like, I saw somebody do, like, a, a little docu-mini-series on uh, the American Prairie Reserve, which you talked about in a previous uh-huh. episode, and how that was really a rewilding process, too. And um, how, wow, isn't it great that uh, rewilding is basically just undoing the last 200 years of human nonsense? <laughs> Uh, and by human nonsense, of course, they mean like colonizer nonsense. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, okay, that is really encouraging to think that, you know, we're so close in time 
in those places, like even Mongolia, uh, compared to the Pleistocene, that like restoring those things and rewilding those things is much more doable. Yeah. Um, yeah. There. And so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, it was just something dumb. <laughs> I, I'm uh, always here for that. Okay, fantastic. Uh, there is a subreddit called r slash megafauna rewilding. <laughs> oh my god, you've told me about this. It's great. Uh, there's only 8,000 people on it, so let's take it over. Oh, I'm into it. Yeah, okay, let's do it. Um, yeah. I bet they love Pleistocene Park, because really, this oh, is yeah. one of the only places where anything of the scale is being attempted, so that's kind of amazing. And, you know, I say this scale, it's not like there's thousands and thousands of herbivores out there. There's quite a, a small number, in fact. And one of those reasons is that, you know, it's a very remote property. And so, like, not only is it, like, dangerous to the point of potentially life-threatening sometimes to get animals out there, uh, but it's incredibly expensive. In fact, mm. at the end of uh, the lecture series that Nikita did for these folks, like they were doing a little bit of a fundraiser for him and his work. And they were like, would you say that giving you money is the best way to help you? And he was like, uh, no, the best way to help me would be to send me 12 bison. <laughs> so I don't have to pay for the cost of transport. Just give me 12 Amazing. bison. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, horses were the first ones released, and as they're releasing these animals, they're looking at a couple of things. Number one, are they going to recreate an important ecological role for historic mega herbivores? Number two, are they at least somewhat adapted to the Arctic regions? Mm -hmm. uh, so when possible, like for example with the horses, they were Yakushin horses, which are native to the region. Um, they are pretty well adapted to something like a Siberian winter. They released them. They're doing great. By 2007, they had like a totally sustained, stable population. So they're doing great. Um, but of course, this ecosystem needs a lot. Oh my gosh, look at those camels. Wait, when was that? <laughs> 11 days ago? Uh, maybe? I don't know. I, didn't, I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, 11 days ago. There's another post uh, four <clears throat> days ago. I don't know who this Melanth person is on Reddit. But they have a lot of posts about them just being in Pleistocene Park with some camels. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I actually had not heard of um, the Pleistocene Park actually introducing those Bactrian camels yet. So that's pretty exciting to think that yeah. they're like literally like pictured what? Like, is that maybe the Pleistocene Park in Canada? There's more than one. <laughs> Uh, no, never mind. Okay, they're they're just talking. I'm trying to figure out, like, when the Bactrian camels, because I was not aware that they were, like, being introduced, and I feel like I don't know anything about that. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Hmm. Fascinating. This, this guy definitely lives in Russia, because all of his posts are about Russian topics. Amazing. God, I love it. Um, man, they don't even because I looked at I even like looked at the Pleistocene Park website to to learn as much as I could from like directly the source and their own research articles, and I didn't see anything about bacteria and camels. Wow! Ah, shut up. Reddit now comes through again. Reddit is incredible. If we're being honest, okay, so. Um, 
The Yakushin horses were the first ones. Uh, they have subsequently released quite a few, and actually when they originally fenced in the park, they just fenced in some wild moose, so they're there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, they have released sheep, they have released musk ox, they have released reindeer, Kalmykian cows, which again are a domestic breed. They were the close to, closest, in their opinion, um, to like, you know, the the prehistoric ancestor of cows that would have lived in the area at the time back in the day yaks which are uh from asia they live on the steppe and uh are pretty close representative of some of the mega herbivores that historically lived there that were related Mm -hmm. did i mention sheep yeah okay and uh two different (laughs) types of bison so both subspecies of bison Mm -hmm. the plains bison which they actually imported 12 plains bison from Denmark. Interesting. And uh, the wisent, which is the uh, wood buffalo, the the Eurasian or the European bison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, they only have the one, and he kind of just is really aggressive to everybody else, so he just kind of oh. hangs out, and uh, <laughs> they're like, all right, good luck to you. Um <laughs> But a lot of the other animals are doing pretty well. Um, they, they, man, they had some really fun stories though. So the interview that I watched with Nikita where he was talking about this whole process was in 2018. So I don't have quite as much detail about what happened in the couple of years prior because, you know, there's just basically a bunch of uh, inflammatory articles about it online and stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm use, using their own website to base a lot of this information off of. But... Um, Oh, sorry. The the yaks are actually from Baikal, like Lake Baikal, which we talked about in the Mongolia episodes. Oh, nice. Yeah, which is cool. Okay, anyway. Yeah, he had one really harrowing story of, like, basically risking his life on the sea trying to bring muskox to the station. So, like, they went and, like, captured wild muskox and brought them back on the sea. Like, the whole crew was seasick. They almost died. It was horrible and harrowing. And he's like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> and, then they, and then they got them to the Pleistocene Park and realized that they were all males. <laughs> Oh, no. And so he was like, in the interview, he was like, we are in high demand to find ladies for them. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, a lot of their goals involve uh, creating sustainable populations of these animals. But at least for the time being, they do have animals that are surviving and thriving quite well in the environment and performing ecological roles, which is important, too. Um, He also talked about using frozen rivers as roads and how when they were driving out to get the wapiti, the rivers were thawing out that they were using as roads. Oh, no. (laughs) I know. And so they were like, it was kind of dangerous driving on these frozen thawing rivers to get the wapiti with all these live animals. And then the wapiti actually escaped after winter because the fences weren't tall enough to keep them in. And as far as I know, they actually don't even have them in the park anymore right now because... Uh, they're not even listed on the website, although some uh-huh. places will mention them because they have been released. But yeah, they they didn't get to maintain those. And a lot of these animals are, um, I should point out, subspecies that are adapted to Arctic conditions. So wapiti is also like an elk that we have in North America, but this is like a Eurasian cold-adapted wapiti, you know? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so all kinds of harrowing stories about trying to make this place happen. 
Um, and again, the barriers are that it's just so remote and it's so expensive to get there with live animals. Um, and, and they do have to have sort of an acclimation process for a lot of these animals. So they'll, they'll feed forage to them, um, just to make sure they can get through the, the first winter, especially. And, um, when they plan on bringing in, like, you know, for example, he would really love to get like a herd of maybe 50 or a hundred bison from the United States or Canada. Uh-huh. And Canada is probably the better option because, you know, there's such a huge risk that after all that time and effort and money spent getting them over there, that if they're not cold adapted already, a lot of them won't survive the first winter. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they, in those sort of situations, they, they provide or plan to provide shelter for them, you know, when necessary to help them acclimatize. And even with the course of things like Asian elephants, which he would like to get up, um, he's talked about, you know, maybe what would have to happen is, uh, you know, over the course of a couple or a few generations, slowly moving them further north and letting them kind of adapt through the generations to colder and colder climates to get them back up there. Um, but at the same time, he is very quick to point out that the animals they have brought up there are not dying because of the cold. Uh, they seem to be dying rather because of forage or lack of forage. Um, mm. And he pointed out that the Mos- Moscow has a zoo with African lions that have lived there in the outside, no interior exhibit for 50 years. And in <laughs> Moscow, it can be minus 45 Celsius. So like Dang. these li- African lions are hanging out in Moscow, giving birth and just sustaining themselves totally fine. So... Um, you know, he, he suspects that with this sort of thing, um, people are really overthinking the ability of animals to survive cold. And um, really, the, his main priority is thinking about how to provide for them in terms of their forage. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I feel like heat is usually a much bigger stressor as long as they have food in the winter than cold. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good like, point. Naked. So. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I looked a little bit more on camels in Pleistocene Park, and it seems they have an Instagram. Um, but it seems like uh, the camels were unloaded sometime around June 10th. Uh, so, yeah. <gasps> like last month. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. Because I know, like, that's the, the Bactrian camel has been in their list for a long time, wanting to get yeah. them in. So that's so exciting. Ah, fantastic. Um, yeah, so as of June 10th, I guess, they have Bactrian Camels. Thanks, Nicole. That's so yeah. fantastic. And if you really want to help uh, Pleistocene Park, they actually have an American and a European foundation that are registered nonprofits you can donate to. But probably the best thing to do would be to send them, like, 12 bison. <laughs> so if you fantastic. have the means, just just send Nikita 12 bison. Preferably from Canada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can't have no warm weather bison. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, but but having these different herds of herds of herbivores and watching how the ecosystem has changed and how they've impacted the habitat is what's really allowing them to do so much research on the impacts of these herbivores. And, you know, um, one maybe last detail that I think is kind of cute about this project is that... Um, Researchers suspect that uh, the removal of trees when they did occur probably fell largely to mammoths back in the day, Mm. which clearly not going to happen. 
Um, especially if their Asian elephant plan involves like multiple generations of Asian elephants slowly moving north. So <laughs> what they do is they actually have this decommissioned tank, <laughs> um, which they've outfitted with like a crane arm and they like, they use it in their research and stuff. Like it's a very <laughs> multi-purpose decommissioned tank and it's in so many of their behind the scenes photos and stuff. <laughs> Um, but they also take this tank and use it to be like an artificial mammoth and they'll just like bulldoze trees down. <laughs> That's great. I want to be that I person. I think it's fantastic. I know. Are they hiring? Because I will move there and I will be their artificial mammoth. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's really cool. It's cool that they're doing this project. It's really only been taking off in the last like 10 years or so. Um, you know, the first introductions took place in the 90s, back in like Soviet era. Um, but, you know, the most recent string of introductions and efforts um, have really been since 2007 or so. Uh, okay. 2011 is when it really kicked off and they really began to get serious about building this park because they had so much of the research required to back it up and to justify it. Um, and they're continuing to do that research and it's just such a cool project and I love all of the climate change implications and I love that f maybe it's a little bit easier to keep them contained than a mongoose. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so very excited to see what, what happens to this project as they go on. And I guess that's all they have. Oh, they have a Twitter. Oh, they they have the camels on their Twitter too. Nice. So someone just didn't do very good research. I didn't remember that social media existed. <laughs> I was looking in research articles. Uh-huh. And watching lectures, okay? <laughs> Nerd. Graze on, gentle reader. I wonder if they still have only male muskox. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> cool. Anything else you'd like to add on? No, you know what? I am very satisfied. If you would like to learn more about Pleistocene Park, definitely check them out on Twitter or Instagram, wherever you want to check them out. And uh, yeah. Check us out on, not Instagram, but on Twitter. <laughs> and <laughs> hey, if you liked this episode, consider leaving us a review as well on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. It helps us out a lot. And, you know, you can send us some fan mail. Check out our website, grassandgroupies.org. Long live the mammoth step. Oh, my God. So I get that Plasticine Park is all romantic and stuff, but can we also maybe, like, I don't know, rewild every other grassland? Thanks. <laughs> yes. We can call it Pleistocene stuff if that helps us get the funding for it. <laughs>